Thank you, brothers and sisters, for being here today. It's a wonderful thing to start yet another week together, seeking the Lord, being reminded of the eternal things, being uh, caught up together in what is reality. So thank you so much for your, uh, your, your time this morning. If you're new, I want to say a special welcome to you. My name's Chuck. I'm one of the pastors here. About 70% of the Sundays I preach, and this morning we'll have opportunity to hear from somebody else. Eric Naylor is going to be sharing with us, so I know you'll be blessed and encouraged by that. Before Eric comes, I wanted to take just a couple of moments to make a few pastoral comments as we head into um, election week. I wrote down three things that I hope would be an encouragement to you today as we go into what is for our, if you live here uh, permanently in terms of citizenship for this nation, um, what will be a contentious week. And I pray that um, we would keep these things in mind as we walk through this week. Number one, uh, friends, our king's throne is not in Washington, D.C. Whatever candidate wins, uh, his presidency will be temporary. And in another couple of years, we'll be doing this again. Hopefully it won't be as contentious as this one, but the presidency role in the United States is a very important position, and yet it is not an ultimate one. King Jesus is the only one who will reign forever, and so we Christians can have confidence that whoever happens to hold that office while making decisions that do impact our lives, um, our King ultimately is King Jesus. Amen? Uh, a second reminder is that uh, we should be cultivating and, and, and pressing into our hearts the truth that the foundation of this Christian community is the gospel, not political alignment. There are uh, Republicans and independents and Democrats who make up Church on Mill, and we have the reality that sitting in the room this morning are people who hold very different positions and think they are right, and yet some of us are wrong. We, we can't all be right, and yet we can hold those positions strongly, and yet that not be a test of our fellowship together. Because in the end, what, what is the binding agent of our relationship is not who we vote for, but rather whose we are. We belong to Jesus. He is our King, and He has placed us into this new family. It is our love for one another that will show the world we are His disciples, and recognizing that, even in the context where we might hold very different and strong political views, is so important. I think one of the things the Lord's doing right now for His church is that like a, a, a rubber band, if you take a brand new rubber band and you stretch it quickly and you stretch it beyond its bounds, it will break. But if you take a rubber band and over time you, you slowly stretch it out, it'll, it'll go further. We are having the, the elasticity of our relationships with one another stretched. And may God help us to see in that stretching that what ultimately holds us together is, is not our party affiliation, but rather the family that God has placed us in. And then finally, I pray that we would um, think and to pray 
and talk and reason and sleep this week as Christians if our candidate loses. Now, it's very likely by this point next Sunday we won't know the answer to that question, but eventually it'll become clear who, who will hold that office for the next four years. And we would do well to think about how we could speak about and reference uh, the, the one who is in office when the one we voted for doesn't make it. Meaning, the, the way in which the Scriptures would call us to behave toward the one in authority, even if it wasn't the one we wanted, is that we would submit, that we would support, and that we would, we would pray. Even if there is disagreement about policy or about character, that we would see ultimately who's there as an act of God and one that we will submit to. And so I pray that we'll show ourselves as Christians in how we speak of the other. May God help us this week, and may we show something of His character to, particularly towards one another as we think through these things. This morning, Eric Naylor is going to be sharing with us uh, from the book of Acts. Eric serves as the executive director of Collegiate Ministries, so the whole arm of our church that seeks to serve both international and local uh, ASU students is led by Eric. We're so thankful for his leadership. Eric um, is a man who loves the Lord, whose life is lived consistently on mission for him. The fruit of his labors is evident to us and uh, he has a great word to share today. I'm looking forward to you hearing it. So, as Eric comes, would you welcome him with me? Thank you, Pastor Chuck. Let me get all situated. <laughs> Good morning, Church on Mill. I feel so uh, privileged and honored to be able to preach the word to you guys this morning. Uh, and uh, if you have any children in the room uh, for um, grades kindergarten through fifth, uh, you can be dismissed now, and they have uh, age-appropriate learning at this time. <clears throat> if this is your first time here, welcome. And especially if you wouldn't identify as a Christian, I just want to say doubly welcome. I'm so glad you're here. This is a, a building, and, and these are people uh, that love your presence, and we're glad that you are here. Now, every Sunday, uh, at least since March, we have been, as a church, working through the book of Acts. This book was written over 2,000 years ago, and uh, we are considering what did the original author say and what did the original audience hear? And there's truths in this book. And we believe that the truths exist, can permeate time and culture and space, and, and there is a message that is true for us this morning. Today we pick up in the middle of this story. We're going to be in Acts chapter 23. You can turn there. There's uh, blue Bibles in the back if you would like to look at that. There will also be some scripture up on the screens behind me. Now, before we read, let me just give a quick snapshot of, of all that has just happened. The Apostle Paul 
a follower of Jesus, has just finished a third missionary journey. This guy has been traveling all over the Mediterranean world. He's come back to Jerusalem, and he's in the temple. And he was arrested there, which is just like an amazing scene to think. This is not a temple, but, but perhaps kind of like it. Could you imagine people, a, a man being arrested and, and almost torn apart? It says uh, that this Jewish kinsman nearly killed him with their bare hands. But providentially, Roman soldiers intervened and saved him. In, in hopes to understand why on earth are these Jews trying to kill Paul, the Roman commanding officer, a tribune, brought Paul before the Jewish council. But you see, that ended in another mess of confusion where Paul was almost killed again. And this is what Pastor Chuck just preached on last week. That's the whole first half of Acts 23. And we ended last week in verse 11. And take a look at that. Chapter 23, verse 11. It says that the following night, the Lord stood by him, by Paul, and he said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. <clears throat> just try and picture that night for a moment. Uh, perhaps Paul struggled to go to sleep as he was thinking about all of the crazy things that just happened that day and that week. Men are trying to kill him. I don't know if <laughs> any of you have ever had people try to kill you. But Paul had not just any kind of man, but an authority and men with clout and power and followers trying to kill him. And as Paul considered this in his current predicament, he is sitting now in a Roman barracks. And his next future is all up to the commanding officer there and whatever that man says next. I wonder if it was hard for Paul to sleep. But perhaps he finally did fall asleep. But he stirred and, and he woke up as he maybe rolled over to his side and, and he feels a bruised rib where he was just beaten hours before. And verse 11, the Lord appears to him and makes this promise, Paul, you will testify also in Rome. This must have been an encouraging moment for a discouraged Paul. And we see that God's provision does not delay, but the very morning, perhaps while Paul was still sleeping in his jail cell, God began orchestrating an escape. We will see in the text this morning that our God faithfully provides for his people and his promises. I have uh, Micah this morning who is going to read for us. Micah, come on up, buddy. He will read Acts 23 and look, look on as t verses 12 to 35. Here you go. <clears throat> now please listen as this is the very word of God. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. They went to the chief priests and elders and said, We have strictly bound ourselves by an oath to taste no food till we have killed Paul. Now therefore you, along with the council, give notice to the tribune to bring him down to you, as though you were going to determine his, cases, his case more exactly and we are ready to kill him before he comes near. Now the son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush, so he went and entered the barracks and told Paul. Paul called one of the centurions and said, Take this young man to the tribune, for he has something to tell him. So he took and brought him to the tribune and said, 
Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you, as he has something to say to you. The tribune took him by the hand, and going aside, asked, the, asked him privately, What is it that you have to tell me? And he said, The Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow, as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him. But do not be persuaded by them, for more than forty of their men are lying in ambush for him, for, who have bounded themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, Tell no one that, y that you have informed me of these things. Then he called two of the centurions and said, Get ready. 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea at the third hour of the night. Also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect. Claudius Lysias, to the excellency of the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by him. When I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him. Having learned that he was a Roman citizen and desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council. I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have done against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And on the next day, they returned to the barracks, letting the horsemen on, go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul before him. On, on reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Sicily, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. Great. Thank you, Micah. <clears throat> I don't know if he realized he was going to read a small novel when <laughs> I asked him to, to read God's Word. How do you believe God interacts with the events and details of your life? Is God like a watchmaker that created and, and spun the universe into motion, but has now stepped away, no longer interacting with his creation? Or do you see that God is in charge of the, the big events of life, the miraculous ones, most definitely the cross, but the smaller, more mundane things of life that make up most of our days and time, may, maybe God is not that concerned with those things. Thinking about this question from a slightly different angle, do you attribute the good things and circumstances of your life as being from God, but the bad things and circumstances as being from something else? When you face opposition, evil, and terribly unwarranted circumstances, what is your sense about God? How do you see God? In short, how do you see God's hand in the events of your life? The good, the bad, the big, and the small. So my prayer is that in these next few minutes, uh, we would 
grow in our understanding of God as we think through these questions. I believe our passage sheds light on these questions, and I pray that this message would be an encouragement and help to you. And as Micah just read God's word, I wonder if you could see that our God faithfully provides for his people and his promises. I believe the text shows us at least four things that we ought to consider about the Lord's provision for Paul. And therefore, how we should think and consider God's provision for us. Uh, These are opposition, opposition in our provision, our participation in that provision, the unlikely details in the provision, and the invisible hand of God in it all. So let's consider the first first, opposition. Look at verses 12 to 15. Now, is it not just a little bit shocking perhaps even disheartening, that at the, after, the first thing after this promise from the Lord, the very next verse, there's an assassination attempt on Paul. I mean, as Paul heard this news, I could just imagine him being like, seriously? Friend, just because God has declared a promise to you does not mean that there won't be opposition. Perhaps it is even more likely that there will be opposition and trials if the Lord has made a promise to you. I mean, that has been the case for so many throughout the Bible. Can you you think of some of those people? Abraham promised he would have a son, but then came a trial of waiting. Moses delivered the Israelites only to face the opposition and stubbornness of Pharaoh. David promised to be the anointed king But first, years of running from Saul, trying to kill him. And it was the case for Paul here. Only hours after the Lord made this promise to Paul, another promise was made in direct opposition. Look at verse 12. The Jews made an oath to not eat or drink until they had killed Paul. The original Greek would have said something like, they they, uh, cursed themselves with a curse, meaning May God do to us more if we eat or drink, unless Paul is dead. This is their way of invoking God into the situation. This is their version of saying and showing to everyone that they are most serious about this, more than anything. I mean, just consider what vitriol and hate must have existed for somebody to say, I will not eat or drink until you are dead. And not just one person, but over 40 men making that oath together. I mean, what specifically had Paul done to deserve this kind of hate? Yes, Paul believed something different about Jesus. That Jesus was the promised one, the fulfillment of the Old Testament. But Paul was not inciting violent revolts. He was not defiling the temple. He was not even trying to take the Jewish leader's seat of power. Paul was doing nothing deserving imprisonment or death. I Even the... the The rough and tough Roman soldiers could see that. Now, let's even remember the occasion that brought Paul back to Jerusalem. So he he comes back from these missionaries' journeys, yes, to celebrate these festivals and, and Passover, but also to deliver monies collected for Jews in Jerusalem because at the moment they were starving in a famine. Paul literally had just traveled hundreds and hundreds of miles to come and deliver monetary help to Christian Jews in Jerusalem. And now there's a group in Jerusalem that want to kill him. 
See, this vitriol and hate for Paul could be a little perplexing for us. That is, until we remember the words of Jesus. In John chapter 15, Jesus says, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. Jesus elaborates on this idea in one of his most famous sermons in Matthew chapter 5. He says, Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Jesus says, Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And so there we have it. The hate and vitriol for Paul was because of Jesus. As Paul aligned his life and became more like his Savior, the world hated him evermore. And so, Christian, you will find times in your life when you experience unreasonable and unwarranted hate and vitriol because of your faith. In fact, one of the ways you will even know that you're becoming more like Jesus, sounding like him, thinking like him, acting like him, is because you will face persecution. Jesus said that would happen. It happened to the prophets, it happened to the apostles, and it will happen to you too. But Jesus makes another promise in Matthew 5. He says, blessed are you when this happens, for it is proof positive that the kingdom of heaven is yours. Christian, you can rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. I mean, just think about that promise. Heaven, but your reward is great in heaven. I mean, that, that is not just my musing, but a promise from our risen and raising king. One more note on this oath that was made here in Acts. Now, remember when Paul heard this and I, and I said, he might think, seriously? Now, although it seems so severe that they'd not eat or drink, it also was just very much for show. The Jewish rabbis taught that when people made oaths like this, they could be released from them if they were no longer possible to accomplish. And the reasons that they could make were vast. Really, any reason. They could make this oath invoking the Lord, but could and would easily be let off the hook. They didn't have to follow through. Despite all the buildup, invoking the Lord's curse, this kind of oath lacked the serious resolve and conviction one would expect. See, while our text doesn't say what these 40-plus men did when they couldn't complete their oath, in my study on this passage, I saw not a single scholar assume that they held to their oath. Actually, it was normal and even written down that they could be released. And that seems very likely what they did. See, this shows perhaps the very reason why Jesus told us not to make oaths. It wasn't serious. It was for show. There's a fakeness and showiness, insincerity wrapped in, in all of this. Now, speaking of fakeness and insincerity, consider for a moment the corruption of not just the conspirators, but also the Jewish leaders. These 40-plus men made an assassination plot to uh, kill Paul, and that's surprising in and of itself. <clears throat> but even more shocking, they perceived they could tell not only their spiritual leaders, but they could tell the judicial court of their land. And these conspirators knew the character of their chief priest was so corrupt that they would have the audacity to even invite them in to their evil plot. And their assumption was right. The leaders who were supposed to provide justice, who were supposed to be examples of righteousness, those people 
were persuaded to be accomplices in an assassination. See, if I had more time right now, so much could be said about leadership, about good leadership, about godly character. But I'll just say, it is necessary that we Christians pray and work toward and look for godly leaders. As we finish thinking about the relationship between opposition and, and provision, I think it could be well argued that the opposition towards Paul was actually the catalyst that began to fulfill the Lord's promise. There seems to be no evidence that the Romans were going to move Paul, but then this evil plot was hatched, and it resulted moving Paul 60 miles closer to the destination Rome that the Lord promised. See, God can use the opposition we face as the first domino that cascades into the provision that we need. It's November 1st today. Now, 10 months of 2020 behind us. Has anyone faced any trials or opposition this year? And I'm not trying to be trite, but just seriously consider for a moment. What trial or opposition have you faced this year? If you had to name one, what would it be? Can you think of it? Now, can you see any way that God might have used that trial, that opposition, for your provision this year? Do you see how he might be using that for your good currently? And now today, this morning, this week, what current trial or opposition are you facing? I mean, perhaps it's the same one that we've been facing, you've been facing this entire year. But what is the current trial today? What do you think and even feel about God as you think about this current opposition, this current trial? I asked the question at the beginning, how do you view God when you face opposition and trial? When you face trial, do you say with Job, the Lord gave and the Lord has taken away, blessed be the name of the Lord. Do you say with Job, shall we receive good from God and shall we not also receive disaster and evil? Friend, perhaps your current opposition and trial has more to do with the provision than you realize. I don't know your trial or your opposition, and and even if you and I spent the rest of the day talking about it and you tried to explain it all to me, I still wouldn't fully emotionally understand it all. I couldn't feel it all. I wouldn't comprehensively understand it. Not even, I wouldn't even have the ability to hear every one of your thoughts around this particular trial. But our God does and knows all of it. And he is faithful and he provides for his people and his promises. And sometimes that provision begins in ways that we would never expect in opposition. Let's consider our second point. God's promise and provision often involves our participation. Paul was told by the Lord that he would testify in Rome. And I think that we could believe if anyone took God at his word, it would be Paul. Again, as I studied this passage, no scholar assumes Paul disbelieved the words the Lord said to him in verse 11. But the very next morning, after God gives him this promise, he is told that there is a plot to end his life. 
Now, did, did Paul get scared and, and worried that God's word would be overcome by this plot? I mean, while we can't know for sure, that just seems pretty unlikely. You see, this week I had a, a strange, maybe even a, a bad thought. I thought, if, if I were Paul, and I got this news about this plot after verse 11, <clears throat> I, think, I think I'd be tempted to just do nothing. I mean, God already told me I'm not going to die. I mean, at least not until I go to Rome. So until that happens, I'm immortal. I mean, let them come. I'll do nothing and just see how the Lord saves me. Maybe he'll send down a host of angels or, or work an earthquake. Or he'll send down an inferno of fire and burn up all of my enemies like he did the prophets of Baal. I mean, couldn't you just at least see that argument? Who cares what the Romans or Jews or if aliens came down, if anybody plots against me, the Lord has promised this. I have nothing to be worried about. But you see, Paul is wiser than me. Paul believed that promise, that the Lord would bring him to Rome. But Paul also saw himself as an active agent in the provision of the promise. So I wonder, do you see yourself as an active agent in God's provision. Paul didn't just sit on his hands, but he acted in a way that he thought would be prudent, wise, and helpful in accomplishing the word the Lord had spoken. As we read through all these verses, we aren't given any direct commands. We aren't told what we ought to do or ought not to do. In these verses, we aren't even given a particular theology that we're supposed to believe. But instead, we're giving an amazing example of Paul portraying for us how one ought to live in the, this tension that, one, God is sovereign over all things, but also that we are responsible human agents. See, God is sovereign over all. His promises are true. His provision is sure. Nobody believed this more than Paul. But just as true as God's sovereignty, Paul believed, and we should believe this too, that we are active agents used by the sovereign Lord to fulfill his promises and accomplish his plans. One application that I think could be helpful for us as we consider this example Paul gives us. See, as you think about the salvation for your friends, your family, your coworkers, not only does God know all who will turn to him, but as the sovereign Lord, we believe he alone can make hearts come alive. We believe that. May we also believe and not forget that we will be used by the Lord to fulfill his promises and accomplish his plans. Or to say another way, God has predestined and determined who will be saved. And yet the foolishness of our evangelism, our prayers, and our preaching are the primary way our sovereign Lord saves people. So for your, your friend, for your, for your spouse, for your parent, for your child, as you're tempted to give up because they're just far too gone, and you say to yourself, God is just going to do what God's going to do. Yes, God is God and he will. But don't forget that your active participation and your prayers are part of the plan. The Bible teaches us that we worship a sovereign Lord and also that we are responsible participants in his plan. And here in Acts 23, Paul models for us what that should look like. Our God faithfully provides for his people and his promises and we have an active participation in it. 
Our third point, God's providence often includes unlikely things we would never write into the pages of our lives. Let's look at the specific details of just how Paul is saved and this plot is foiled. Look at verse 16. The son of Paul's sister heard of the ambush. First off, Paul had a sister. After all the activities, sermons, and books that have been recorded of Paul, we actually know very little about Paul's family. If you ever, here in the room, if you ever plan to be a preacher, just take note. Paul didn't share a lot of stories about his life and family. The pulpit is not meant to be a spotlight for the preacher's life. I know many of uh, the college students here at Church on Mill, you're going to end up in other cities and states and for some of you, other countries. As you look for a church, go to a place where the pastor becomes almost invisible because every week he is shining light on the text and not himself. Church on Mill, I don't know if we always realize how rare it is in our day that we have a gem and even provision in our pastor, Chuck, who exalts the word and not himself, week after week after week. So we know very little about Paul's family and life, despite so much of the New Testament even being written by him. Back in verse 6 of this chapter, we see that Paul mentions he was a son of a Pharisee, and now also apparently he has a sister and a nephew. And somehow this nephew heard about the assassination attempt. I mean, we could speculate, but we simply just aren't told how the nephew heard. It is interesting, though, to let your mind just kind of wander and think about the many details and the contours of that boy's day and how he somehow got access to this secret information. And with the news of the plot, the nephew comes to Paul to warn him of what he has heard. Paul asks one of the Roman centurions to take him to the guy in charge, the commanding officer. And note how Paul says, take this, what does he say? Young man. We aren't given a lot of info about this nephew, but we are given that he was young. And perhaps he was quite young. The Roman centurion, verse 18, also describes the nephew as a, what, young man. And now looking at verse 19, the commanding officer, this Roman tribune, takes him by the hand. And sometimes we call our, our college students or our high school students young men, but it just seems a little odd to me that a rough and tough Roman soldier would take a senior in high school or a 200-pound college man by the hand and say, come over here, let's talk. Although it starts to make a little bit more sense if the nephew was a young man like, like Micah or perhaps even a little bit younger than Micah. I mean, can you imagine this young boy now in the Roman barracks, a place he's probably never been, and he's looking around and there's soldiers and there's weapons all around him. And there's... And the Roman tribune realizes he's a little flustered. He says, he takes him by the hand and he brings them so that they're alone. And maybe he even stoops down and gets on his love and he says, son, what do you have to tell me? And Paul's nephew relays the plot to the Roman soldier. And note verse 21. It is, it is more than just giving info, but this little guy, his boldness, telling the Roman commander, don't be persuaded. And the tribune listens and he tells the boy, go and tell no one what you've told me. And as Micah read for us, the tribune believed the boy and he listens to him. And verse 23, verse 24, he begins mobilizing hundreds of soldiers. And this is no small task. And let's just note, it's not free either. 
Any kind of military movement takes resources, and this one was not a small one. They move out under the cover of darkness, marching likely all night to Antipatris, and then the horsemen bring Paul the rest of the way safely into Caesarea. The tribune did not only provide his soldiers as a bodyguard as well, as an escort for Paul, but, but look at this. He also writes a letter to His Excellency, the Governor Felix. Look at verse 25, this letter. How, is the, the, how are the Jewish accusers portrayed in this letter? What's the first impression the excellent Governor Felix would get? Well, verse 27 says the Romans had to rescue Paul from them. Verse 29 says the tribune found no fault in Paul. And then verse 30 says these Jewish conspirators had a plot to murder him. I mean, talk about first impressions. Later on, it's no wonder that most excellent Governor Felix does not believe the Jews who have come to accuse Paul in chapter 24. I mean, just on the basis of this letter. And so our chapter ends with Paul being now guarded in Herod's praetorium, being guarded by a Roman army, the strongest army in the world at that time. The Jewish conspirators tried to use the Romans to carry out their will, but God sovereignly used the conspiracy to incite the Romans to carry out the Lord's promise. How ironic that God uses the Roman troop to protect Paul from his own kinsmen, and a threat on Paul's life leads to greater protection and even stronger security for him. Before we go any further, let's just consider, just make note of how God was fulfilling his promise and providing for Paul, I mean, albeit unlikely means. So just real quickly, first, Paul has a sister and a nephew, and apparently this nephew had sympathetic disposition towards Paul. Not all of us could say that about our relatives. And somehow this young boy hears, a, hears the plot. I mean, can you imagine what little minute, perhaps even mundane events allowed this boy to get in the room or to hear of this assassination attempt. The boy had the courage to go into the Roman barracks and tell Paul. Paul sees himself as an active agent in God's plan, and he asks a nearby soldier to take the boy to the tribune. The soldier agrees, which, by the way, the soldier is the one in charge. He doesn't have to take orders from the prisoner, but the soldier agrees and takes Paul's nephew to the commanding officer. The commanding officer, what was he doing that day? Well, he had apparently enough time to take an audience from a Jew, which he definitely didn't have to, especially a boy. But apparently the demeanor of his mood that day and the circumstances of his day permitted him to have time to talk to this Jewish kid. And the Roman officer decides then to, to believe the boy. A military march is set in motion. The Roman escort in the cover of darkness protects Paul. And not only that, but he goes with a letter that is written in, in providing future protection and providence for Paul. <clears throat> See, these events are surprising, many seemingly unlikely, yet perfectly timed, and all working in unison to accomplish God's promises. And this is just a cursory list of what God arranged for Paul's provision. Our God faithfully provided for Paul and his promise. And this time he did through a myriad of odd and strange and just frankly unlikely events. Our God faithfully provides for his people and his promises. And this brings us to our last point I want us to consider. 
and that is the invisible God in our provision. Look back over these verses, 12 to 35, that we just read. Do you see anything supernatural? Do you see anything miraculous? I mean, the author Luke has no problem talking about the miraculous. The book has had angels and miracles, earthquakes. But here, in Paul's provision, none of that. From verse 12 to the end of the chapter, it doesn't even appear that God is mentioned. After the Lord appears to Paul in verse 11, he seems to go invisible. Yet the provision continues. In my study, I read another pastor and his comments on this passage and how he was reminded of the book of Esther. In the Old Testament, we have an entire book of the Bible that inconspicuously mentions God nowhere. In Esther, the Lord's lack of mention draws our attention to his invisible hand and his provision. In all the details, the big ones and the small ones, significant and almost forgotten, God is always working behind the scenes, fulfilling his promises and providing for his people. And here we get a similar reminder that, God, that our God works in and between every single moment and detail. Yes, Acts is filled with miracles, but perhaps it is even more filled with the natural, mundane, seemingly normal activities, activities and events, all directed and informed by the invisible hand of God. Our God faithfully provides for his people and his promises, even when we don't see him. In conclusion, one might be asking, well, well, God made this specific promise to Paul about a set of problems 2,000 years ago to go to Rome. This doesn't seem to apply to me. I'm not immortal till I get to Rome. What promise have I been given? What about me? I'd say that's true. We're not <laughs> immortal until we travel to Rome. God did not promise you or me that. But the Bible is filled with promises that could be rightly appropriated to you and to me. If we remember, Jesus promised when he raised Lazarus from the dead in John 11, he said that I am the resurrection and the life, and whoever believes in me will never die. Eternal life is promised to any and all who believe. Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Remember earlier in this chapter, that is the very thing he was pronouncing, the resurrection. This was a promise that Jesus gave and he gave first to Lazarus and those hearing, but that promise is also to us. When Jesus rose from the grave and he ascended into heaven, he promised to those that follow him, those that are his disciples, I will be with you to the very end of the age, Matthew 28. See, that was a promise for the disciples on that mountain 2,000 years ago. But it is also a promise to all of us in this room, disciples of Christ in 2020. As you face opposition when you leave this building, when you don't see miracles happening, when you feel so worn down in the trials of your life, if you believe in Christ and the provision that he has provided you on the cross, then it is just like the Lord standing in the barracks before Paul. Our King Jesus says to you, he will be with you to the very end of the age. 
And if you're not a Christian, this promise is offered to you too. If you would believe in the Son of God, Jesus Christ, the one who was truly hated, the one who was condemned most unjustly, he has defeated death and he is coming back. And even though we can't see him, his invisible hand is working in every moment. And one day, we will see, no longer invisibly, but visibly, every single one of his promises came true. Let us end with these words from the Apostle Paul. And just rehearsing and claiming the promises that we have in Christ. This is Romans chapter 8. If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is it to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, and more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution, famine or nakedness or danger or sword, as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor heights, nor death, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Please pray with me. <clears throat> Father God, you know every one of us here in the room. And not only that, you know every circumstance in our life. You see the opposition and trials that we're facing today, that we face to this year. And you even see in our minds our, our frail beings and even the wavering of our faith at times. God, hold true to your promises for your name's sake and your glory. I pray that you would heal marriages in our church. You would convict our hearts to confess our hidden sins. The fear and anger that so many of us live in, that, you, that we would repent and that we would forgive. Help us believe in your promises even when we cannot see your invisible hand. We pray all of these things in the powerful name of Jesus Christ, our King. Amen.